0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, Northway Church, wherever you are, uh, it's a privilege to be with you uh, today and especially a privilege to uh, finish up our DNA series as Shay uh, has communicated already. And so I, um, I, I'm going to start over. We're, we're already done. All right, here we go. All right. Well, hey, Northway Church, very good to see you wherever you are. Uh, as Shay already mentioned, it's my privilege to finish our DNA series where I get to talk about community. And I just want to note now the irony of talking about community to a camera with hardly anybody in this room. And uh, if that doesn't just kind of draw attention to even the, the significance of this value and just the timing of a sermon like this, then I don't know what does. But what I do know, what is true in my own life is that absence does make the heart grow fonder and that a a Trinitarian God, a God uh, in the community of the Godhead creates a world in his image and he creates a community. And so I have felt the longing for connection and the inhibitions of not having that connection really in an acute way. And so, Um, We've read our passage already for today, and I'm gonna focus specifically on Hebrews chapter 10 verses um, 23 and 25 uh, through this value of community. So let me read that now, verses 23 and 25, and we'll look at the prior verses here in a second. But it says this in verse 23, Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near i think there's two critical questions that jump out of this passage two ideas uh, one idea is foundation and the other is formation but with the idea of foundation i think this is the question we have to answer what makes our christian community distinct what makes christian community distinct And then the formational question, which is also a big one how do we actually experience Christian community? So, what makes Christian community distinct? And then, how do we experience Christian community? And so, we'll start with the foundational question what makes Christian community distinct? Verse 23 let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So, I learned in seminary that if you want to read um, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, then you have to read a couple Old Testament books as backstories. Um, Like Hebrews is almost an explainer of what's happening in the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus. Okay, so if you dive into the book of Leviticus, uh, which if you've done that uh, as part of your reading, then I really applaud you because it's heavy lifting. But what you get into in Leviticus is sacrifice and ritual, uh, codes, uh, laws around cleanliness, purity, atonement, holiness. It it is it's it's dense and it's purposefully dense. And then you get into like the duties of the priest, and there was like you were changing the lamp oil and the uh, and changing out the bread of presence and. Making sure that the incense fire is right and it's like crazy particular. And you're making daily sacrificial offerings all while being really careful to not touch anything unclean. The the closest thing that I can compare it to is my grandma growing up had this room in her house, and we just knew that was the room that you didn't go into. And it wasn't like, you know, take your shoes off before you just, you just, you weren't allowed. To to stand on the carpet, to sit on the couch, it was just you couldn't go in there. Um, it just wasn't for us. And so you 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 get into in Le, like Leviticus, and you get into like the intricacies of the tabernacle, where only Levitical priests could go. And then you go one step further into this holy place, this holy of holies, where everybody can't get into except one person. And so the idea is that there's access in the tabernacle that we have no place in. And then you get further into it, and there's the day of atonement, one time a year, where the high priest goes further in, and all of this backstory is important for Hebrews, I promise, but this high priest goes further in, and he drops this Incense bomb to shield him from the mercy street, mercy seat in the holy of holies, uh, sprinkling blood, the blood of bulls and goats in the most precise way, all behind a veil in the hope of what we now know is forgiveness deferred. Okay, and so in the on the inside and on the outside, it is a heavy moment, and everybody's holding their breath. And we come however many thousands of years later and we find ourselves in a heavy moment where everybody is holding their breath. Um, A recent Pew survey done last week said this, that a large majority of Americans who pray daily, that's 86%, and of U.S. Christians, 73%, have taken to prayer specifically during the COVID-19 outbreak. 15% of adults who say they seldom or never pray have prayed. And 25% of folks who say they don't belong to any religion at all have prayed specifically for the end of COVID-19 just in the last few weeks. And I'll say this, man, in a crisis, it's, uh, um, it's good and right for us to know who and what we have access to. Maybe say it another way. Let me say it this way. Like in a crisis, it's, it's good and right for us to know, for us to pray for bad things to end. Like that's a safe prayer. And God hears those prayers. But there's actually something underneath that in this crisis that I think we're experiencing. There are deeper prayers underneath even the prayer that God would spare us from this sorrow. And those prayers are when we are faced with death, acutely aware of our flaws and without a, a, just really an awareness of what happens beyond this life, are are we okay with God? Like, are we okay? And so there's the prayers for things to end. There's the prayers for the heaviness to go away. And then there's the prayers underneath that. Like the really existential questions that we ask, are we okay? Are, are things going to be okay? And that's why I think that like, how we view God right now matters more than anything else. Because if he is on the other side of a veil and we are just hoping and wishing and praying that everything that we're not ultimately a part of is, I mean, like that's categorically different than what the author of Hebrews is saying. That namely, we specifically have access into the other side. And let me explain that differently because there's a new kind of access that the author of Hebrews is talking about and I want to start in verse 19 of chapter 10 and then just finish to where we've read listen to this okay it says this therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water okay like i i don't have the time to get into the fullness of the intricacies of what's going on so what i want to do is i want to turn your attention to one phrase there and that phrase is the great high priest This is what I think is so um, helpful for us as we think about the distinctiveness of Christian community. The high priest back in Leviticus, he was other than, okay? And this wasn't his fault. This is just the way the law was written. He stayed away from the masses, okay? Like he couldn't go near uncleanliness. Like if you had illness or disease, if you had leprosy, he could not touch you. Because by touching you, if he did that, he would become ceremoniously unclean. And so he stayed away and he stayed behind the veil. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that it's not that way anymore because the high priest doesn't step away from our illness and our disease. He actually steps towards our illness and our disease. He actually comes near this great high priest and he touches us. He leaves the temple and he comes down the stairs and he touches us. And by touching us, he heals us, but he doesn't just heal us, okay? He brings us back into the temple and he rips the veil open through his flesh. That is his life, his death, his resurrection, and he brings us into access with the Father. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is celebrating, What this great high priest, not the high priest of old, but what this great high priest has actually done for us, we don't earn, to say it another way, we don't earn a healing that is paid for. We receive healing that we don't deserve. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. He's trying to say that because of this great high priest, we have unlosable access and permanent forgiveness. And to say it another way, we have nothing to prove and we have nothing to hide. And that actually makes us different than the people around us. Because apart from this assurance that we have nothing to lose and nothing to hide because of this great priest who has gone into the temple before us and cleansed us, like apart from this assurance resonating deeply in our souls, we have everything to prove and we have everything to hide. This is why good things even now In crisis, good things like family and career and friendships actually become ultimate things. And why those of us like post-resurrection, like those of us who are in Christ still have the same temptations in our life. Like we we are no different in our temptations than the people who have not experienced this kind of healing, right? When we... Uh, have everything to prove by how much money we make or every um, image to keep up on Instagram or whatever that it like. like That's why, like, unless this story is resonating deeply in our souls, we still have everything to prove and everything to hide. But the point of what Hebrews 10 is saying is that one has gone in before us and he's given us access to the Holy of Holies by his death. But not only that, he's come down and he's cleansed us from evil consciences, and He's encouraged us right now, like, to go to the Father. And so, like, I, I'm—I just—I, like, I, if that doesn't resonate with you, one of two things are possible: one, I haven't communicated it clearly, which is entirely possible, or two, your view of God's grace is too limited, too narrow, too deficient, and your own self sufficiency is too elevated. Because what this is saying, and I'm telling you, like there are people in our church and let's be honest, there's people who are praying for the first time in a long time. And this crisis has brought so many anxieties to the forefront. And what this text is saying is that you don't have to ritualistically cleanse yourself or purify, you go to the father. Because in Christ Jesus, we have unlosable access and permanent forgiveness to God. And that changes everything to us. This confession that we see in verse 24, it speaks to the most hollow and ravaged parts of our soul. Then in the darkest nights of our soul, which this season elevates, we remember that because of Jesus, we are loved. We are kept because this high priest is faithful to us. But we keep going because this confession um, that he says is an unwavering commitment to our confession. It's the Greek word, homologion, and it's used in the New Testament multiple times to represent an all-encompassing view of the basic Christian story. Um, Paul uses it a few times to represent just the Christian story in essence. And man, I think this is important to remember because this moment for us, remembering our confession with an unwavering commitment, it's not just like for our little moment in time, Okay, it's not like just Dallas, Texas in 2020 experiencing a COVID crisis. No, like this is the confession that the church has hung on to for 2,000 years. Like this is the confession that ultimately gave way to the creeds, which is still the basis of the Roman Catholic Protestant and Eastern Orthodox church. This is the confession that expands geographical lines. It expands racial lines. It expands denominational lines. Like this confession of the high priest who has gone in to give us access to God. This is what's buoyed the church for 2000 years. This is what's you, this is what is uniting people like a 15-hour plane ride away right now who are experiencing COVID-19 with us. This is our good confession that we hang on to. And let me say it another way, okay? Christianity, like there are, and I again I don't have time to explain all this, but there are specific moments in time when all of your cultural commentators are pushing a kind of a, a a new vision of the world and with that vision is christianity is past tense and there's something else taking its place and i'm telling you that could not be further from the truth like the reason why Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church is because the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And 2000 years later, halfway across the world, we're still here, we're still standing, we're still enduring, we're still singing, we're still persevering because we know that Jesus has risen from the grave. That's not just something we celebrate last week, it's something that we celebrate all the time. And so I just want to encourage your heart with like, I'm t- like Christianity, and, and I'm telling you, like even in the last hundred years, you see people going, oh, Christianity is dying. Christianity is not dying. Christianity is flourishing. And it's flourishing in places that we don't even know. It. Look at Africa, look at Asia, look at South America, look at the way that the church even here in the United States is being purified and restored and redeemed. And so I'm, I just wanna encourage our hearts with that. What ultimately makes Christian community distinct? The great high priest, he loves us, he keeps us, he gives us access. We have nothing to do but receive that, receive that gift in kindness and remember the hopefulness of his return. So that's what makes Christianity distinct or Christian community distinct is because it's conditioned by this story, this love of the gospel. But we get into the second question, formation, and that's how do we experience Christian community, Okay. Um, let me say this. I, um, I don't think I have to spend very much time um, talking about why you should want community because uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that most of us uh, actually have that strong desire in our heart. And I think I could make this argument several ways, but let's just talk about like pop culture. Let's talk about TV shows going back to the 70s. Like in the 70s, you have All in the Family and then in the eighties you have Cheers, a place where everybody knows your name. And in the nineties you have Friends, a place where everyone will be there for you in a you know really rich apartment that none of them can afford. But uh, and then you just like you just you keep going. And I'm telling like like go back and look at the TV ratings. Like this is us right now. Like like the most popular shows of the last fifty years revolve around the idea of community, like real human, like real humanity, real family, tension, drama, love, and everything that comes with that. And like, these are the shows that like, like networks have made hundreds of millions of dollars on. And so I don't feel like I have to spend any time trying to convince you of your desire for rich friendship or what the Bible would call koinonia. I think it's really great news that God has actually hardwired this uh, desire in us for fellowship. But this is where it gets interesting in trying to answer the question, how do we experience Christian community? Um, There are kind of three action ideas here, and none of them are ultimately about what we receive. It's ultimately about what we do. Um, The language isn't passive. And what I mean by that is the language is hopeful because the language talks about like one another And in one another is the hope if you do these things that somebody else is doing something for you and you're experiencing this, but there's not passive language here. The language is stir one another up to love. The language is encourage one another and the language is to not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And so I wanna dive into these three ideas here. I'm gonna take them out of order and I'm sorry if that bothers you, but it just helps me a little bit. So let's look verse 25 in the experience of community not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some. Okay, let me give you some commentary. This is F.F. Bruce about what's actually happening at the time that the book of Hebrews is written, okay? Things were getting really hard, okay? This is what he says. The return of Christ is taking longer. Uh, The belief that they were living in the end times was actually weakening They were getting fatigued over the otherness of Christianity, how Christianity stood apart against their former lives. And they were also feeling the sudden hostility of the imperial power. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I think it actually translates pretty well. Uh, Because I think about this presently in my own life, and I came to Christ uh, 23 years ago. And, uh, you know, let's be honest. I've looked up at the skies once or twice and going, hey, are you... uh you coming back? Like just you, you know, this, all this stuff I've been looking for. Are, are you, you know, I'm I'm like, guys, I, I, I doubt like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. This is my vocation. I've given my life to this and I doubt. Um, and I know many of us doubt. Um, and, uh, I have hard days and, uh, I, um, I think myself, and become increasingly, increasingly aware of the, uh, of the otherness of Christianity uh, over and against our world, and especially in the rise of secularism and the, uh, and the radical autonomous self, which we're feeling everywhere around us and even the temperature boiling there. Um, but here's what I've come to realize, and I think what buoys my heart. For every doubt I have on a hard day with my Christian beliefs, I have about 10,000 doubts about the lies of secularism because John Mayer said long before COVID-19 that we're living in the age of worry. And he's right. He's right about that. There's an article that came out two days ago that like loneliness has spiked. People who believe themselves to be lonely at an all-time high. I mean, you. I, I just like, I think that secularism is... The weakest worldview in human history. And I'm not the only person that believes that. Because really, the only thing that it can give you is a category for everything being okay in your life. And if anything breaks down in your life, then you don't have the tools to deal with suffering. And I I just I just think secularism is weak. And I think radical individualism is fracturing all around us. And I think we're beginning to see the just negative fruit in the symptoms of this, where the world that doesn't believe what we believe still has so many answers left um, that I don't think they have explanations for. And um, Mark Sayers, who's been helpful for me, says that when you think about the secular worldview, what, what secular people ultimately want is They want progress without the presence of God. And they want the kingdom without the king. They want the virtues of Christianity, what has come from Christianity, but they don't actually want the authority that comes with it. And um, I think that's right. And what I know, much like the uh, Federal Reserve right now that just keeps pumping money into our system, um, the world continues to pump the idea that we need more freedom, like we need more freedom, we need more choice, we need more ability to make truth what it should be for us. And I'm, I just don't find that compelling whatsoever based on what I believe is fracturing around us. But what I do know this is that radical individualism has infiltrated the church. And um, there's a term for this that Sayer says called do-it-yourself Christianity. And I can say candidly in my own wrestles here, I see a lot of this in our church as well, where it's DIY Christianity. And what that looks like is, well, I like this. I like this aspect of your church, but I don't like this. So I'm gonna go here and I'm gonna get this here and I'm gonna go be here and part of this. And I like this belief that you guys have, but I don't really like this belief. And I love y'all's worship, but I don't like this. And I mean, I just kind of experienced enough for me to know that this kind of idea has taken within our church. And what's interesting is, Um, when you think about these ideas, like, and this, again, this is Mark Sayers, but you have these kind of three buckets of community, freedom, and meaning. Okay. And let me try to explain this. Um, Any, and, and freedom, let me say, so freedom is a good thing. Like, I love that we have some freedom. I actually love that we have a lot of freedom. That's a, that's a gift to us. Um, I don't love what people in authoritarian regimes like North Korea, I don't like their lack of freedom. And I don't like the limited meaning that they have in their lives uh, because of oppression. But what happens is when the tank of freedom gets so full, it's impossible to experience all of that freedom along with fixed meaning and shared community. Let me say it another way, okay? Okay. So, I am a husband to Dana and a dad to three kids. And I have to, for my family to flourish, for me to actually experience community. I have to have two things. I have to have shared meaning with Dana. So we have to agree about certain things. This is my role. This is your role. These are our values. These are our convictions. This is what we're gonna pursue. This is what we're not gonna pursue. And we actually have to be in lockstep in our home around around shared value and vision, we have to. But beyond that, I have to forego my freedoms all the time for my family to flourish. And so like when I want to just like maybe be in my room, like reading a book or something, And the opportunity cost of that is spending time with my kids or throwing the baseball with my kids or going out riding bikes, whatever that looks like. Like I understand that for my family to flourish, for us to actually experience community comes with a meaning that I don't ultimately get to decide because it's a shared meaning and the limitation of freedom in my life. So to say it another way, you cannot have complete Freedom, total freedom, the ability to do whatever you want always and experience the kind of community in your life that I think you want to. It's impossible for you to experience community. You actually have to enter a conversation around shared meaning and you have to give up some of your freedom. And that pushes against what is pumped um, on our society in the regular. And I think I saw this maybe in... um, in Harry Potter, in uh, the first book, The Sorcerer's Stone, where Harry, and this is his first year there, uh, Harry's orphaned and uh, he goes and he finds this famous artifact. It's called the Mirror of Erised. And when he finds this mirror, um, he looks into it and he sees the deepest longing of his heart. He sees uh, his mom and his dad who died when he was uh, a baby, a child, and he sees them and it makes his heart so warm. And it, you're, you're just so taken by 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 what this meant to him. And then he just sits in front of the mirror for hours and hours and hours. And then finally, Dumbledore, who is his father figure and mentor walks in and he sees him, Harry alone, looking at the mirror. And this is what Dumbledore says about the mirror of Erised. He says, it shows us nothing more or nothing less Than the most desperate desires of our heart. This mirror gives us neither knowledge nor truth. Many have wasted away in front of it, even gone mad. And I think this is Dumbledore's point is that when you look in a mirror exclusively, the only person that you see is yourself. You cannot see a person to your left, you can't see a person to your right. If you see them, they're not real. They're in your imagination. And what I think Dumbledore is saying is the, what Harry actually needs more than a mirror that can show him the desires of his heart are friends who can speak what is ultimately true and then help him to see what isn't true. Harry needs his community. I think that's what Dumbledore's saying. So if we're only looking in a mirror all the time, like if we're only in our own heads all the time, then we miss the ability for the people that God has created to draw ideas out of us that are not healthy and to speak truth to us and to affirm what is. And that's why we need more than a mirror. That's why we need more than just our own freedom and individuality. Um, We need each other. And uh, I mean this. When I say we need community, I mean this at a granular and a corporate level. So corporately, I mean this by the ongoing gathering of the church and by a granular level, I mean your gospel communities, your C3s, your people who know you and people who you know. And I just kind of think about questions, maybe this, and maybe just some questions for my own life and for you. Like, what if, what if we found... What if we pushed against this idea of the radical self and do-it-yourself Christianity? We committed all the more to our community here or wherever church God leads us. What if, what if in that, what if we found that the cumulative effect of 50 average sermons week to week is ultimately better long-term for us than the 10 that we liked on YouTube that we thought was worth our time? What if the most wonderful meal that we ate every week wasn't happy hour at one of Dallas's coolest restaurants, but what if it was actually uh, this meal that we take together every Sunday where we remember the access and the forgiveness that the high priest has purchased for us? What if that was the most compelling meal in your life? The meal you took with your family every Sunday What if the gospel community that presently feels stuck and boring to you became the people for whom you made the most substantial investment of your life? And you said, hey, listen, like instead of me waiting for you to go all in on me, I'm just going to go all in on you with every hope that we'll experience the reciprocity and that community and healthy community might form. And so The action item here is that we wouldn't neglect to meet together as some were doing and as some of us are still tempted to do, but that we would make a commitment to the local church. And then he says in verse 24 that we stir one another up to love and good works. And again, I have every hope that someone is doing this for you, but you ultimately cannot control the people around you. You can only control yourself now, if you're in a horribly toxic community, then I would encourage you to get wisdom and to likely get out of that, get out of that community if it's toxic. I'm not saying you, you, you stay in toxicity, but what I'm also saying is if you're in a group of people who wish uh, and you wish that they did more for you, what the biblical charge here is ultimately that you would do more for them and that by doing more for them, they would be compelled by what you do and that you would experience that. He's saying, go love others for Jesus's sake with a gospel-centeredness. What does that mean? It means that we forgive because God forgave us. We enter into hard places because Jesus has entered into hard places. We forbear and are patient and merciful with people because Jesus was patient and long-suffering with us. That's what it means to be a community of love, And then I'll tell you specifically, this is something that's kind of always haunted me from the book of John, where Jesus says that um, one of the ways that we actually make the gospel compelling to the city of Dallas is by the way that we love one another. And that's why stirring up one another to love and good works is significant. And so we have not neglecting to meet together. We have stirring one another up to love and good works. And then lastly, we have encouraging one another and all the more as the day draws near, um, so I'm just going to be um, going to be honest with you. Like, I can't wait to hang out with my little community of friends at Mi Camino over here, about a mile and a half that way, on the patio when all this social distancing stuff is over. I can't wait uh, to feel the warmth of the sun. I'll even take the Texas heat out there. I'll, I'll just deal with it um, because it'll be worth it to be there with my friends and my community and to laugh with them and to have them make fun of me uh, and to uh, make fun of them. And uh, just kidding. But um, actually, I'm not. But um, I am um, uh, to receive uh, encouragement, admonition. Uh, to be reminded of what is ultimately good and right and true. To be reminded that the promises that we hold to are true, and that Jesus really is coming back for us. And this word "encourage" actually means to put courage into somebody's life. And I can't—I I know, like I'm—I'm I'm speaking to the choir here. Mark Twain said, uh, like tongue in cheek, that. Uh, he could live two months off a good compliment. And that's not what I'm trying to say here. But what I am trying to say is that really direct, really specific encouragement goes a really long way in somebody's life. I remember in ninth grade being really insecure, awkward. I know I, I still am, but you know, I just I remember a Sunday school teacher. This is right when I came to faith, looking at me in front of a small group of people and saying, Matt, I think you're a leader and I think you love people. And I think that God has a calling on your life. And I like I here I am, what, 23 years later, still remembering what he said to me. And so, like, in the midst of like our inhibited season, I don't think that we're gonna start like the fourth world initiative for missions. I, I, I just I, I think we're limited right now, and we should be because we presently can't leave our houses. But what I do know is that we have the ability to pick up the phone. And to call the people that we love and to say, I love you. The Lord loves you. Everything's going to be okay. And the king who has brought us access to God, broken down the veil, who came out of the temple to touch us and to cleanse us and to heal us, that king is actually coming back for us. And because that's true, everything's going to be okay. And we have the ability right now to pick up the phone, to talk to our family, the people that we can speak to, and to speak words of encouragement and affirmation into their life. And so foundationally, what makes um, Christian community distinct? It's the gospel. It's what makes us distinct. It's the love of Christ, the access that he's given us to the Father and the forgiveness that he's purchased for us. And then how do we experience Christian community? We do so by stirring one one another up to love and good works, by encouraging one another, uh, and by not neglecting to meet together so as to miss the experience of our life together. I love you guys. I pray that you have a great week.